Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode UB Blake, Bill Robinson, and the African-Americans who invented Broadway. In our last episode, I outlined the vibrant but almost entirely forgotten series of African-American musicals that thrived on Broadway during the first decade of the 20th century and strongly influenced the creation of the Broadway musical just at that moment it was becoming its own separate and distinctive art form. That productive era, however, was followed by nearly 10 years in which black musicals were entirely absent from Broadway. But during that decade, the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North, combined with the dynamic social changes that emerged after the First World War, would transform Harlem into a vibrant breeding ground for modern black culture and lead to a new and even more significant series of black musicals. The first, most successful, and most influential musical of that era was Shuffle Along. With music by U.B. Blake, lyrics by Noble Sissel, and book by Floynoy Miller and Aubrey Lyles. The show opened in the spring of 1921 and almost immediately caused a sensation, and it jump-started this new era of black musicals on Broadway. Its plot revolved around an election for mayor in an all-black town in the South. The characters did not stray very far from the old minstrel show stereotypes, but even so, Shuffle Along is considered by many to be one of the instigators of the Harlem Renaissance. Just what was the Harlem Renaissance? In his book, Harlem, the Crucible of Modern African-American Culture, author Lionel Bascom says the Harlem Renaissance was a sudden blossoming of black visual, performing, and literary art in New York, and he explains how these, quote, seismic cultural changes created an unprecedented opportunity to use art to recast the Negro as a deserving, worthwhile American, no longer to be seen as just the downtrodden descendants of slaves. And Langston Hughes said more than once that Shuffle Along was the instigator of this incredible period. 
He added that for nearly two years, the show was always packed. Shuffle Along, he said, gave a scintillating send-off and a pre-Charleston kick to the Negro vogue in Manhattan that soon spread to books, African sculpture, music, and dancing. The creators of Shuffle Along were all talented vaudeville performers who began writing their own material. The book writers were the comedy team of Flournoy Miller and Aubrey Lyles. Miller and Lyles were both born in Tennessee in the mid-1880s, and they met while attending Fisk University. Their vaudeville act consisted of songs, jokes, and physical humor, and included a sketch called The Mayor of Dixie, which they thought could be expanded into a full musical comedy book. Shuffle Along songs were the creation of Noble Sissel and Eubie Blake. Sissel was born in Indianapolis in 1889, and he began singing in his high school glee club. He dropped out of college to join James Reese Europe's Society Orchestra and later played in Europe's regimental band with the 369th Infantry Regiment known as the Harlem Hellfighters during the First World War. James Hubert Blake was born in Baltimore in 1883. Both of his parents were former slaves. Yubi started exhibiting extraordinary piano skills at the age of six, and by the age of 12, he had already composed the Charleston Rag and other ragtime tunes to the great disapproval of his mother, who did not want to have the devil's music in her house. I wrote this, ladies and gentlemen, in 1899. Now I'll play the Charleston Rag. His professional career began in Atlantic City, where he worked with James P. Johnson and other veterans of the first wave of black musicals on Broadway, and he briefly took over leadership of the Society Orchestra after James Reese Europe's death. Eventually, Cicel and Blake also teamed up to form a hit vaudeville act called the Dixie Duo. It was during this time that Miller and Lyles approached them about joining them in creating a musical comedy for Broadway. After much struggle, they persuaded the white producer John Court to give the show a trial run, and following a severely underfinanced tour, the show opened at a rundown, seldom-used theater on 63rd Street, more than 10 blocks away from most other Broadway shows. Featuring all four of its authors in leading roles, Shuffle Along opened on May 22, 1921, and soon became a smash hit. Yubi Blake's score for Shuffle Along helped to usher in the jazz age, although it doesn't sound all that jazzy to us today. And his music would inspire every Broadway songwriter of the decade. The song I'm Just Wild About Harry became an enormous hit. There's just one fellow for me in this world. Harry's his name, that's what I claim. For every fellow there must be a girl. I found my mate by kindness of fate. Yes, I'm just wild about Harry. The story goes that Blake loved the music of Victor Herbert, and he wrote a waltz for the show in Victor Herbert's style. I'm just wild about Harry. Not with those words, of course. Later, when it was decided that a waltz wasn't such a good fit for the show, Blake kept the melody but change the 3-4 time to a lively 4-4. I'm just wild about Harry. Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his kisses fill me with ecstasy. He's sweet just like chocolate candy and just like honey from the bee. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry. 
just wild about cannot do without he's just wild about me Harry would become a timeless standard and even be used as Harry Truman's campaign song during his successful run for president in 1948. Shuffle Along's large cast introduced many African-American stars, including Adelaide Hall, Florence Mills, Josephine Baker, and Paul Robeson, and it attracted a large mixed-race audience with unsegregated seating. The white cast members of other Broadway shows were so eager to see Shuffle Along that special midnight performances were added on Wednesdays to accommodate them. Overall, the show would run an incredible 500 performances. And as I said, the show was tremendously influential. Irving Berlin went to see it many times, and there's no doubt that George Gershwin and almost all of the other songwriters of the day were affected by it. The show's choreography and wild dancing also had a tremendous impact on Broadway. Ziegfeld and other producers hired the dancers and the creators of Shuffle Along to teach their dancers how to move like that. Perhaps most importantly, Shuffle Along's immense success demonstrated that both white and black audiences were once again eager to see talented black performers on stage and in black authored shows. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short pause. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. As a result of the incredible success of Shuffle Along, over the following decade, more than 20 musicals written by and starring African Americans would open on Broadway. Several of these shows were virtual sequels to Shuffle Along. They were set in the same town called Jimtown and featured some of the same characters. For example, the 1923 musical Runnin' Wild would run 228 performances and introduce the dance The Charleston, along with the song of that same name, by James P. Johnson and Cecil Mack.
it would become the signature dance of the 1920s, and it's a tune that still defines the decade. The creators of these shows included a mix of returning veterans from the earlier era of black musicals, as well as new emerging talents. Toward the end of the decade came a show called Lou Leslie's Blackbirds of 1928, and it was even more popular and successful than Shuffle Along. The producer was a Russian Jewish immigrant originally named Louis Lezinski. He was totally captivated by African-American performers and spent most of his career producing shows with all black casts. Inspired by the Ziegfeld Follies and other reviews of the era, Blackbirds of 1928 was a lavish, star-studded musical review with a cast of 100. It was first performed at a theater in Harlem, then traveled to Paris and London before returning for a 515 performance run on Broadway. The show produced four immensely popular songs, including the still much performed I Can't Give You Anything But Love. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I've plenty of, baby. All of the songs were written by lyricist Dorothy Fields and Irish-American composer Jimmy McHugh. Dorothy Fields was the daughter of Lou Fields of Weber and Fields and the sister of book writer Herbert Fields. We will hear much more about both of them in future episodes. Following Ziegfeld's example, Lou Leslie would stage multiple editions of the show, including Blackbirds of 1930, 1934, 1936, and 1939, and along the way featuring such stars as Adelaide Hall, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Ethel Waters, and Lena Horne. The success of Blackbirds inspired the 1929 review Hot Chocolates and would introduce Fats Waller and Andy Razoff's classic songs Black and Blue and Ain't Misbehavin', sung and played in the show by Louis Armstrong in his Broadway debut. All empty beds, springs hard as lead, feel like old men, wish I was dead all my life through. I've been so black and blue. In 1930, a show called Brown Buddies opened, starring Bill Robinson and Adelaide Hall, and with a score by African-American songwriters Joe Jordan and Millard Thomas. Just as this flourishing of black musicals was reaching its peak, the landmark musical Showboat opened. This 1927 Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein II show was based on the best-selling novel by Edna Ferber, and it was groundbreaking in a number of ways that I'll discuss in depth in future episodes. But for right now, we should note that its plot revolved around controversial themes such as racial inequality and interracial marriage. It was the first musical to intertwine stories of both black and white characters who shared equal importance in the book and the score. The show also had a large multiracial cast with white and black actors sharing the stage side by side. Showboat would run 572 performances. It would tour extensively and have a hit revival on Broadway just five years after its premiere. And in the process, it would offer significant employment to African-American performers. It is arguably the single most influential musical of all time. Unfortunately, the onslaught of the Great Depression in 1929 would make the economics of producing any kind of show on Broadway extremely challenging. 
By the mid-1930s, we have entered another bleak period for black songwriters, directors, and choreographers, and unfortunately, they will not find significant opportunity on Broadway again until the 1970s. As we have discussed, one of the most influential aspects of these black musicals of the 1920s was their exuberant dancing and choreography. We talked about the Charleston, whose wild abandon captured the zeitgeist of the era and whose basic steps would soon evolve into the lindy hop and swing dancing. However, without a doubt, the most significant dance style of the 1920s was tap dancing. And I want to conclude this episode by exploring the fascinating history of this unique African-American and Irish-American co-creation. During the 17th and 18th centuries, over 8 million Africans were brought to America as slaves. They came from a wide variety of regions and cultures and carried with them many diverse art, music, and dance traditions. And these traditions themselves blended and intermingled. And as all people throughout history have done, the slaves sang and danced for various reasons— to reinforce a sense of community, as religious expression, to relieve pain and suffering, and just for fun and entertainment. And Southern whites were exposed to the singing and dancing on a regular basis. For generations, white children spent more time with the slaves who nursed and cared for them than they did with their own parents. White children and the children of slaves played together and grew up in close contact. And as a result, music and dance was exchanged back and forth between them on a constant basis over hundreds of years. African slave music was originally centered around various kinds of drums and rhythmic beats. However, there was an unsuccessful but for the whites very alarming slave uprising in 1739 in which it was believed that the slaves had used drums to send messages to one another to help coordinate the rebellion. And after that, laws were passed forbidding slaves to use drums for any purpose. So the slaves created a number of ways of working around this by transferring the rhythms of the drums to their feet and their hands. They also clacked bones together like castanets and put strings on a gourd called a bonja and in the process invented the banjo, a musical instrument found nowhere else in the world. Another consequence of the Great Irish Famine and the migration to America that we talked about in Episode 2 was that it brought thousands of members of an outcast itinerant group, very similar in many ways to the Roma people. They were known as the Irish Travelers, or Tinkers, who traveled throughout the South and performed their jigs and reels and clog dances wherever they went. The Tinker's foot rhythms intrigued the black slaves, who picked them up quickly. Eventually, they transformed the Irish downbeat into a syncopated off rhythm, and instead of the stiff upper body and arms that the Irish were locked into, the blacks used their arms and entire body in exuberant ways. As Agnes DeMille states in her 1980 book America Dances, the blacks threw away all the restraints until the decorous hornpipe and the Irish clog became the exuberant American buck and wing, tap, and jazz. Well, that's one version of the story. Another thread centers around dance competitions that were mounted in and around the infamous Five Points District of New York in the 1840s. The competitors were an African-American man named William Henry Lane, also known as Master Juba, and the Irish-American dancer John Diamond. 
The Five Points was New York's poorest and most dangerous neighborhood, and where the most poverty-stricken Irish, Jewish, German, Chinese, and African Americans lived, all packed together in tenement buildings. If you've ever seen the movie The Gangs of New York, that is set in Five Points. When Charles Dickens visited the area and one of its dance halls in 1841, he was appalled by the poverty he found, but he was thrilled by the dancing of 16-year-old William Henry Luce. Here is how Dickens described his dancing. Single shuffle, double shuffle, cut and cross cut, snapping fingers, rolling his eyes, turning in his knees, presenting the backs of his legs in front, spinning about on his toes and heels, dancing with two left legs, two right legs, two wooden legs, two wire legs, two spring legs, all sorts of legs and no legs. What's it to him? And in the walk of life or dance of life, does man ever get such stimulating applause as thunders about him when he finishes by leaping on the bar counter and calling for something to drink. Just as boxing promoters would later purposely pit black prize fighters against white boxers, beginning in 1844, theatrical agents organized dance contests between Juba and what they called his greatest white contemporary, 20-year-old Jim Diamond, who was called, quote, one of, if not the greatest jig dancer the world has ever known. The contestants were each paid $500, which was an enormous sum in those days, equivalent to about $17,000 today. This must mean that these competitions drew large and lucrative crowds. We don't know who the winners of these contests were, but according to Tyler Anbinder in his History Five Points, we do know that such contests, as well as the friendly rivalries between native-born whites, Irish immigrants, and African Americans within the Five Points dance halls, had a profound influence on the direction of American dance. Each group incorporated favorite steps from their competitors' dance idioms into their own. In Juba's case, he adopted some of the high-stepping, foot-stomping style of the jig into his own footwork. It was from this interaction between Irish Americans dancing the shuffle and the Irish dancing the jig that tap dancing developed. Juba and Diamond competed in a series of these competitions across the United States and continued to influence each other's dancing. Diamond would become a star performer in minstrel shows, and Juba became one of the first black performers to guest star in a white minstrel show. Juba's fame took him to London, where he performed before royalty, and where he died in 1852 at the age of 27. Which version of the birth of Tap is true? Probably both of them and many similar interactions that have not been recorded. A dance historian in 1948 contended that the repertoire of any current tap dancer contains elements that were established theatrically by Juba. One of those was certainly the breakout dancing star of the 1920s, Bill Bojangles Robinson. The name of this dance is doing the new lowdown. of a tap routine to this number. Listen closely.
Bill Robinson was born in Richmond, Virginia in 1878. He was primarily raised by his grandmother, who was a former slave. As a young man, he was given the nickname Bojangles because of his prickly and cantankerous disposition. At the age of five, Robinson began dancing for a living, performing in local beer gardens, and by the age of 12, he was touring with a show called The South Before the War. In 1902, he teamed up with another dancer named George W. Cooper, and they became a popular vaudeville act on the Keith and Orpheum circuits. They did not wear blackface makeup, even though it was still typically used by almost every black performer in mainstream vaudeville at that time. When they split up in 1914, Robinson launched a very successful solo career. He soon rose to the top in big-time vaudeville and became one of the few African Americans to headline at New York's prestigious Palace Theater. His signature routine was his stair dance, which he introduced in 1918, and he would perform various versions of it throughout his career. This routine was remarkable for both its showmanship and its musicality. As he danced up and down the stairs, each stair step would emit a different pitch. In 1928, he starred on Broadway in the immensely successful musical review Blackbirds of 1928, where he introduced the songs Digga Digga Doo and Doin' the New Lowdown. Make them play that crazy thing again. I got to do that lazy swing again. Hi-ho, doin' the new lowdown. Got my feet to misbehaving now. Got a soul that's not for saving now. Hi-ho, doin' the new lowdown. Although already a star, Blackbirds was a huge breakthrough for Robinson. It was during this time that he became well-known as Bojangles, which for his white fans suggested a cheerful, happy-go-lucky demeanor, but signaled nearly the polar opposite meaning for his black audience. He went on to star in 14 Hollywood movies, most of them musicals, and including multiple roles opposite the child superstar Shirley Temple. Despite his fame, Robinson was limited to a very narrow range of stereotypical roles, usually servants of some kind. In 1939, at the age of 61, he returned to Broadway to star in The Hot Mikado, a jazz-inspired interpretation of Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta. Robinson celebrated his 61st birthday publicly by dancing down 61 blocks of Broadway. Despite earning millions during his lifetime, Robinson died poor in 1949 at the age of 71. This is not as sad as it sounds, however, because he had actually given away much of his wealth to various charities during the last years of his life. According to newspaper reports of the time, his funeral was attended by 100,000 people, including many of the biggest stars of show business. In 1989, a joint congressional resolution established National Tap Dance Day on May 25th, Bill Bojangle Robinson's birthday. Robinson would inspire the tap dancers of his day, as well as all who came after him, including John Bubbles, Fred Astaire, Honey Coles, Eleanor Powell, the Nicholas Brothers, Gene Kelly, Ann Miller, Gregory and Maurice Hines, and Savion Glover, to name only a few. Hi-ho, doing the new lowdown. During the 1940s, tap dancing would fall out of fashion on Broadway, and it would rarely be seen in musicals throughout the 1950s and 60s. 
but then it made a gigantic comeback in 1971 when a hit revival of the 1925 show No No Nanette jump-started the nostalgia craze of the 1970s. Ever since then, tap dancing has retained a strong presence on Broadway and indeed has come to symbolize the very essence of the classic Broadway musical comedy. Broadway Nation is produced and written by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Sean Griffin for his voice acting contributions and to the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra and New World Records. For more music from this era, check out their amazing Black Manhattan series of recordings. I also want to thank everyone at KVSH 101.9 FM on beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and at the Broadway Podcast Network. Take it from me! Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.